If you please turn with me in your Bibles, you may already be open to the Ten Commandments there in Exodus 20, and we'll be focusing this morning on verse 14, where the Lord says, you shall not commit adultery. The statistics are alarming. Uh, Larry Wilson, an OPC pastor, he writes in the OPC New Horizons magazine, he wrote an article titled Pure Sex, and he says in that article, pollsters say that in the United States, more people watch pornography than sports. And they're not even counting as pornography the TV shows, advertisements, and R and PG-13 rated movies that probably belong in that category, end quote. Along similar lines, I've heard that the single largest money-generating business on the internet is pornography. And then there are all the books and magazines which are available whose primary function is to stimulate our sexual appetites and then entice us to fulfill those desires in ungodly ways. And such disregard for God's law concerning sexuality goes a long way in explaining the large number of divorces, rapes, incestuous and homosexual relationships, cases of child abuse, and teen Uh, teen pregnancies that are taking place in our country. And some of these are increasing at an alarming rate. And so we can recognize, indeed, what a sad state our nation is in and how many people have fallen victim to the lies of Satan regarding sex and marriage. For Satan tells us that when it comes to satisfying sex desire, marriage is completely unnecessary. And yet, ironically, it is also Satan is who is behind the current attempt to redefine marriage into something other than a union between a man and a woman. It's increasingly evident that the devil wishes to destroy God's institution of marriage. Satan hates marriage as the Bible defines it. He doesn't want people to control their lusts. He does not want them to satisfy the sex urge God's way, which is within the bounds of marriage. Instead, he would enslave people to their own lusts. And the devil gets many people to, be, to believe this lie that the sex urge never needs to be restrained and confined to marriage, but ought to be acted on at will, whenever and with whomever one wants. The devil boldly says that giving in to lust is the way to happiness and fulfillment. In actuality, the fruits of following the devil's advice are exactly the opposite of what he promises. Lusts are not subdued. They are not tamed by giving them free reign. When desires are fulfilled in sinful ways, the desires become inflamed. It's like throwing gasoline on a fire. If you want a fire to go out, you don't give it fuel. And so it is that people who feed their lusts in ungodly ways start a forest fire in their hearts becoming slaves to ever-growing desires that soon become all-consuming. And the result is spiritual, emotional, and in many cases, physical destruction of themselves and others. This is the context in which God gives us the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And adultery is the specific focus of this command. We might wonder why God didn't word the command, do not commit sexual immorality, because sexual immorality or fornication is really any and every kind of sexual sin. While adultery is a specific form of sexual immorality, namely sexual immorality within the context of the marriage relationship. 
and certainly we ought not to commit any form of sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 7.8, there the Apostle Paul writes, I say to the unmarried and to the widows, if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. Yet God chose to word the commandment, do not commit adultery. By using this wording, two things are happening. First of all, God is bringing marriage into the picture. The clear implication is that any sexual relations are to be only with your own spouse, with your own marriage partner. And two, God is protecting marriages. He is telling you and me that we have no right to have a sexual relationship with someone else's spouse. And if God has spoken in general of sexual immorality, we would have lost this emphasis on the role of marriage in sexual fidelity. Adultery is the right word. And so what is adultery? Well, there are two ways to think of it. First of all, adultery is when a third party enters into an existing marriage relationship and steals away the heart and body of a husband or wife. I think this is how we usually think of adultery. And yet there is another more general way to understand adultery that brings out how this seventh commandment really does cover all sexual sin. And that is that adultery is having sexual intercourse with someone who is not your spouse. Your sexual partner must be your spouse. And the emphasis would be on the word spouse. You must be married. And this person must be your spouse, not someone else's. And this means not only is unfaithfulness within a marriage bond adultery, but also premarital sex, incest, homosexuality, all of these uh, are, are forms of adultery because the partners in these relationships are not spouses. The clear relationship of adultery to marriage brings out that the seventh command is given because the Lord desires to preserve the institution of marriage. We can assume a number of things from this command. First of all, that all sexual relations are to be within the bonds of marriage. 1 Corinthians 7, 9 says, But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. So God tells us that there are only two alternatives. There's either self-control or marriage. That first of all. Second, God loves marriage, and this is not surprising since God designed it. And when it is used as God intended, he is glorified through it. And third, as with all of God's commands, he gives us this command for our good and for our blessing. There's health, there's happiness, there's true satisfaction of our appetites when our bodies are used as God designs, as God intends. So let's consider this text under the theme, do not commit adultery, a commandment that we not commit adultery, and we want to consider this theme under two points. First of all, God's design in marriage, and then second, the keeping of this commandment. So first of all, God's design in marriage. And we begin by stating that the seventh commandment is a way to show love to your neighbor. The seventh commandment falls within the second table of the law and has directly to do with how to love your neighbor. In general, the second table of the law is about respecting your neighbor's place and position in life. You are to respect your neighbor as 
a unique individual whom God has created with various gifts and abilities. And God has blessed your neighbor in ways different than how he has blessed you. In some ways, your neighbor has more than you, and in some ways, you have more. But it's God who decides the differences. And in submission to God, you must respect all of these differences, including your neighbor's spouse. Some of you don't have a spouse, and this must not become the occasion for jealousy or covetousness toward those who do. You ought never, out of greed or discontentment with your lot in life, take to yourself someone else's partner. But instead, you must let God give you a marriage partner as he wills. And this requires that you be content with God's will for your life as it is now and in the future. And if you do have a spouse, as many of you do, then very obviously your spouse is different than your neighbor's. The spouse that you have is the unique individual that God gave to you and for which you must be thankful. Single or married, You must be thankful for the things that God has given you, and you must rejoice with the things that God has given to to your neighbor. Remember that it is God who instituted marriage, and he instituted it before the fall, before sin entered the world, which means that marriage and sex within marriage were part of this good world as God first created it. And God's design was that marriage be an unbreakable bond between one man and one woman. This unity of the man and woman was to be the backbone of society. Within the marriage relationship, the man and woman are to find in each other that which completes them, that which helps them to lead a more fruitful and satisfying life. In marriage, the need for companionship is met, a communion of spirit is enjoyed, And when you have two people working together, there is the combined strength. There is the benefit of one's weaknesses being compensated by the strengths of the other. And of course, also sexual desires are satisfied. Often there is the added blessing of children. These are all God's original and good purposes in marriage. And of course, the fall has affected the marriage relationship so that Because of sin, what was good has been distorted. It has been perverted in many ways. And consequently, God has given us a commandment against adultery to guard the design that marriage be this unbreakable bond between one man and one woman. And yet there's a higher purpose in marriage than all of this. The seventh commandment is also designed to protect marriage because marriage is a unique way in which God brings glory to himself. For marriage is designed to be a picture of the covenant relationship between God and his people. In the Old Testament, God and Israel are described as being married, which is why violations of the covenant, especially Israel's going after other gods, was called adultery. In the New Testament, we find a fuller revelation of the covenant in the marriage relationship of Christ and the church. Always, the covenant relationship between God and his people was based on the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. There's been one marriage between God and his people. Now, as, as, as New Testament believers, we understand more clearly that Jesus Christ is the bridegroom and it is the spiritual body of Christ, the church, who is the bride. And as the bride of Christ... 
you and I have a spiritual bond of communion with Christ that is everlasting. In this communion, we are united with him in such a way that we share in his life, we share in his love, his saving work and its rewards, including his life in heaven. And we are the objects of a love so strong that Christ willingly gave his life to the cruel death of the cross to deliver us from the condemnation of our sins. And as New Testament believers, we now understand from Christ's own example, as well as from the nature of our relationship with him, how our human marriages should look and how they should work. And consequently, Scripture tells us that just as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her, so husbands in earthly marriage ought to love their wives with a love so sacrificial that the husband is willing to lay down his life for his wife. And so also the bride, the church, responding to Jesus' love with submission and obedience and love and thankfulness is the model for the human wife submitting to her husband and doing what she can to bless him. This is very significant. God's purpose in instituting marriage has far more to do than with just our happiness. Our marriages are to be a living picture. They are to be a testimony the spiritual relationship that is shared between Christ and his bride, the church. It's God's purpose that, that our marriages would bring glory and honor to his name as a visible testimony of this wonderful covenant relationship that God has established with his people in Christ. What stands out as we think about that relationship that we have with Christ as his bride, as we think about him as the bridegroom, as think of ourselves as his, his bride, what stands out between the relationship between Christ and his church is that Christ is faithful to his bride. He is faithful to us even when we are not faithful to our bridegroom. Christ is unwavering in his love and in his devotion and, his, and in his care toward us. Christ, we can be sure, will never leave us. He will not forsake us. And this is the case even though we are spiritual adulterers who go after other gods. We go after the gods of money and pleasure and self. And we would be right to expect Christ to just cast us away in anger and hate. We would expect our unfaithfulness to very well end the marriage. But Christ comes to us and he assures us that in the way of repentance and trust, he will forgive us. And it's not that we deserve to be forgiven, but he forgives us for the sake of his grace. He forgives us on the basis of his atoning death on the cross. For there he died in order to be able to, to, to credit his righteousness to your account through faith. And this love of Christ by which he offers forgiveness, abundant and free, should not be taken for granted Christ's amazing, sacrificial, faithful love should compel you to be faithful to him. If you are a true child of God, it will grieve you to violate your marriage covenant with Christ by having these divided affections. Such spiritual adultery is shameful. It's unfitting in all of the light of what Christ has done for us. Coming back now to the seventh commandment, the point is that we are to never commit adultery because our human marriages are to be a picture of that relationship between Jesus and the church. So that we understand adultery is a terrible sin 
in that it casts shame on Christ. When a man's affections go after a woman who is not his spouse, that man represents Christ in what he does. When a woman's affections go after a man who is not her spouse, she represents Christ's bride. It doesn't matter that many women and and men do not realize these implications. The truth remains that adultery in marriage reflects on Christ and the church, either portraying Christ as unfaithful or the church as a dirty harlot. So what about those who remain faithful to their spouse their entire life? We hear of people living faithfully with their spouse 50, 60 plus years. Even as we contemplate those marriages, do those people keep this commandment? Do we keep this commandment in our marriages? Well, let's consider what is involved in the keeping of this commandment. As with all of the commands of God, including those that have to do with loving the neighbor, God requires that we keep them for his sake. The motive in loving the neighbor must be love for God. You must not commit adultery because you love God. This love for God includes seeking to obey him out of gratitude for your salvation in Jesus Christ because true obedience flows out of faith in Jesus Christ. We love, as scripture says, because he first loved us. And when you know Christ with a living faith, with a true faith, you don't want to serve the cause of sin, but you want to serve God with all of your being, including how you use your body. And so when God says in his word that he wants you to abstain from sinful lusts and that he wants you to keep satisfaction of your sex desire within the bounds of marriage, you do so gladly and you do so simply because the God you love wants you to do these things. He wants you to do things his way. Another proper motive in keeping this commandment that relates to loving God is being thankful to God for his good gifts. There would be no adultery if every husband and wife were truly thankful for one another. There would be no single person intruding on the marriage of another if he was content with God's will for his life. It's when you become unthankful for what God has given you that you think you need something else. And all adultery involves a spirit of ingratitude toward God. It involves the rebellious attitude that God doesn't know what is best for me. So keeping the seventh commandment means being content with what God has given you. If you are married, it means you consciously and deliberately love your husband or wife as a good gift from God. Or if you are single, it means understanding and accepting God's will, which is that sex must wait until God graciously gives you a marriage partner. Keeping this commandment also involves loving your neighbor as yourself. And even in this, the ultimate motive is love for God. You are to keep this commandment out of a love for yourself as one created in the image of God and bought with a price in order to glorify God. I'm not talking about a love for self based on selfishness. I'm not talking about a desire to exalt yourself above others. But proper self-love is loving yourself for God's sake. It's loving yourself because of your potential to glorify God. And sexual sin is a unique sin in that it is a sin against your own body. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 through 20 says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body.
So out of a love for yourself as a creature created in the image of God with great potential to glorify God, do not, do not sin against your body. You must also abstain from adultery out of a love for your neighbor. You must never do something that would cause someone else to commit sin. To seduce someone into sexual sin is not loving. It is not loving to the person who is seduced. And if the person seduced is already married, it's not loving to that person's spouse. If the person seduced is not already married, such adultery is not loving toward the person the seduced may marry someday. The principle that applies here is one that applies to all human relations. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And many can say they've not committed adultery in these ways. That's great. But there's still more. There's more involved in keeping this commandment. Because this commandment forbids even unchaste thoughts. When God condemns a particular sinful deed, he is condemning everything that leads up to that sin, including sinful thoughts. This is what Jesus meant in Matthew 5, 28. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Even Job understood this. He says that he had made a covenant with his eyes. And you must also make a covenant with your eyes that you will not look lustfully on the opposite sex. And this is why you must not place before your eyes things that stimulate sexual desire And this requirement is why really none of us can claim to have kept this commandment perfectly. As with all other commands, the heart, the heart is the real spiritual battleground. And as you contemplate your sinfulness, remember the purpose of the law. The purpose, one of the purposes is to lead you to Christ. The purpose is to cut you down and to humble you before God in repentance. The purpose is to show you your need of Christ. And so let the law have its intended result in your life by going to Christ with your sins. Christ calls you to come to him with your sins and to seek his forgiveness. And he says that all who come to him, he will in no wise cast out. The second purpose of the law flows from the first when you know Christ's forgiveness of your sins, you want to please your Savior and begin to ask, what can I do to express my gratitude? And keeping this commandment is one of the ways that you show your love for Christ. As we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, come with an awareness of how Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed so that all of your shame could be covered. With how sinful we are, you and I would fall into into despair if we did not have the gospel and if we didn't have this regular reminder of our Savior's atoning death in our place. His death is our salvation. Christ's death was him taking the wrath of God upon himself, that wrath that we deserve. And may this reminder of the Lord's love for you compel you then to flee to flee from sexual sin to the glory of God. Amen. Let us pray. God and Father, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the forgiveness of sins that we have in him. Lord, we pray that you would deliver us from sin, that you would deliver us from sinful lusts, that you deliver us from sinful words and deeds as well. 
Father, we pray that in every way we would live lives that reflect love for you. We pray, Lord, that we would be thankful for our situation in life, whether we have a spouse or not, or that we would receive the spouse that you have given to us as a, a good gift. And uh, Lord, we pray that we would be uh, content with your plan for us. Lord, we pray that we would recognize uh, the importance of the institution of marriage and that we would do nothing that would undermine um, our own marriage or that of others or the potential marriage of others. Lord, we pray that we would recognize that all sexual sin outside of marriage uh, is uh, destructive toward marriage and therefore is wrong. And so, Father, deliver us, we pray, from any tendency, any direction toward sexual immorality that we would flee from it. Um, Lord, we pray that our motive in this would be uh, to glorify you, that uh, we would be mindful of the fact that marriage is to reflect uh, Christ and his relationship with the church. So, Lord, may we be a good witness in how we conduct ourselves in these ways. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.